The following audio is from Downtown Church, a multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit downtownchurch.com. Let's go now uh, to Hebrews chapter 4 and the reading of God's Word as we continue our march through Hebrews. Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua has given them rest, God will not have spoken of another day later on. So, then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Who, for whoever has entered God's rest has also entered from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing the, to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And thank you. It's the very word of God. Pray with me. Father, we uh, need you this morning uh, to have eyes to see and ears to hear the glorious hope of the gospel. Uh, so come, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would change hearts that are hardened to you. Uh, Father, we pray that you would um, that you would work in a mighty way to accomplish what only you you can do. God, you can bring life to us in this room this morning because you are life. And so we put this time in your hands. I pray for clarity of thought. I pray that your word would not come back void, but you would accomplish your will, your good and pleasing and perfect will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis 3, uh, we see that Adam sins... And then we read this. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. We live... In a cursed world. We live in a world that does not allow us to swim swim downstream, but we're always swimming upstream. We're always running against the wind, not with the wind. The world is working against us, and everybody in this room is tired and exhausted. (laughs) It it, it has no prejudice. It doesn't matter if you, you live in poverty. Poverty is exhausting. 
just to get to the grocery store. You've got to find bus money or money to pay somebody you know, hope they're reliable and they, they get you there. And then when you get there to the store, you don't have the money to buy what you really need. You need to, and so you make the hard choices. You get back to uh, an apartment or a place that uh, the utilities may or may not be on. And so the food may go bad, or may you've just learned by now not to buy food that can go bad. It is tough in poverty, but it's tough and exhausting to get out of poverty. You work one, two, three jobs, and you still don't have a car. And you, your kids have to get to school, and, and so you, you depend on other people for rides, and you get the job, and then the, you lose the job because you don't have reliable transportation, and you start all over again. The child gets sick, and you don't have health insurance, and on and on it goes. And then you get out of poverty. You find stability in life, if you will, and it just becomes this grinding schedule that you're always working against falling back. And even wealth is exhausting. (laughs) I was reading, or I am reading, a a book on leadership right now. And it's written by a guy that that grew a church from like 30 people in his living room to uh, 30,000 people. And I got to a section in the book where it says his staff is, he has 400 people on his staff. And I just kind of put the iPad down. <laughs> I was like, I don't want that. You know, I was exhausted when I heard that he was managing 400 staff people. Friends, those that have wealth, you know what their biggest fear is? Losing wealth or not being able to make more money. All of our lives are exhausting. We think that's not true. We think as we look around that, hey, they've got it much easier than I. Uh, we, but, but, but nobody's life is cruising downstream. All of us have scars. All of us have deep brokenness. All of us have inner turmoil that we're all dealing with no matter what the exterior looks like. We are exhausted. And you hear it. That's the curse. You are dust. And to dust you shall return. Work, 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 work. And to dust you shall return. The Roman believers could understand. They could relate. Those to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing are facing Neronian persecution. Nero is sending out his inferiors to round up believers and ask them if they are willing to bow the knee to him, and if not, then they will be burned at the stake. It is exhausting to live in that kind of atmosphere. If those that were not being physically persecuted are living with the great potential and the present reality of persecution. And we all know what anxiety is. Many of us are on medication for anxiety. You would think that we'd move beyond that, but we're not. Anxiety is fear of things that have yet to happen. But our body responds as if it is happening. We, we become anxious of what might happen. And there's no way that the believers in, in Rome are not experiencing some deep anxiety. Why? Because they are facing real consequences for their faith in Jesus Christ. 
And in the midst of this, it's interesting to see that when the writer of Hebrews writes, he doesn't say, church, everybody get on your knees right now and let's pray that God would take the persecution away. You don't even see persecution in the book. He doesn't, he doesn't ask us to, to pray or doesn't ask the believers to pray that the persecution ends, but he offers rest in the midst of the horrible circumstances of the persecution that they're facing. He, he doesn't even, he barely even alludes to the fact that there's persecution of the church. You have to read commentaries and, and, and go deep in study to realize the historical, um, um, situation and context of when the, the, the book of Hebrews was written. Why is that? Because if you think about Christianity today, I would assume that most Christians look to Christ as a tool to manipulate the situations and circumstances of life. Most of us look to God as as being pragmatically useful to us only if He will just change life and get in line with our um, agenda and itinerary for how we think life should be going. Am I right? I mean, that, that, if you look at our prayers, we're saying, God, change this, God, change that. God, not, God, give me rest in the midst of my circumstances. Lead me into, so into the hope of your gospel that I don't need my circumstances to change, but I can be restful and at peace in the midst of facing being burned alive at the stake. I mean, don't you understand that this is what we should all want. It's what Jesus offered in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it's, it's easy. And for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Isn't that beautiful? Dear friends, what Jesus offers us as Christians is a haven of rest in the midst of whatever circumstances you are facing in life. So the question to us this morning is, do we know that rest? Do we know it? Do we know it in a deep way? And are we a community that is resting, that the world stands back and looks and says, there's something different about those people because they aren't as anxious as we. They don't scurry about worrying like we. Are we a people of rest? Let's look at it. The first thing that we need to understand to become a people of rest or a person of rest is that the essence of God's hope is rest. This isn't some side issue. This is the essence of the gospel. God holds out the hope that you can have rest in the midst of the storms of life. Rachel and I went to Laughlin Yard, the new restaurant, just uh, about 200 yards from here. Uh, we went Friday night and met some new friends there. That place is awesome. It is. I was talking to somebody, I think Gene Cashman, before um, uh, the service, just about how incredible that place is. Because uh, you, there are a couple of buildings, um, but then there's like this, this yard, this big yard that has Adirondack chairs and fire pits. And you can just kind of hang out. The food is incredible. And the drink is incredible. And there's music playing. And it has those, light, you know, as the sun's going down, it has those festival lights that are strung up. You feel like you're at a festival. You feel like you're at a party and you want to be there. And so we went Friday night and it's all I could think about yesterday. I wanted to go back. I was trying to figure out a way that I could go back Saturday night. 
Rachel, not so much. It's a big crowd. She doesn't like huge crowds. And so, but the extroverted Richard, I'm like, there are people everywhere. I want to meet them all. So, yeah, the place is amazing. Do you realize that Jesus gave a parable to describe the kingdom of God in Matthew 22, 1? He gives a parable of how he wants us to think about the kingdom of God. Listen to it. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. That bizarre. Who would not want to go to a wedding feast? And again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have all been slaughtered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The kingdom of heaven is a wedding feast. Now let me give you a parable of how most of us think about the kingdom of heaven. If Richard had to describe how the church portrays the kingdom of heaven, and many Christians portray the kingdom of heaven, this is how the parable would go. Um, once upon a time, there, uh, there was a new business owner who threw a grand opening for his new business. And he sent out flyers to the city and, and announced there would be free food for all. And so many received the invitation and they, with great anxiety, accepted it and, uh, or great anxiousness and excitement, accepted it. And all day long they, they fasted because they were going to a feast. Free food, they read. Free drink, they read. And they showed up. And what did they see on the buffet but some sandwich meat stuck on the end of a, of a, um, uh, what are those little sticks? Say it again. Toothpicks, thank you. Wow. There you go. <laughs> Toothpicks, there you go. And those little pieces of dry cheese. And a little, like, you know, sample cup, like you get at the dentist, you know, of, of watered-down lemonade. And they ate a couple. And they drank a little thing of watered-down lemonade. And the whole time they did, there were salesmen walking around trying to make the hard sell, trying to get the email so they could follow up, bombarding you. And you leave the grand opening disgusted and disappointed and hungry, having to find food somewhere else. I mean, is that not how we view the Christian life? I mean, who in here views it like a feast? that a king, a wedding feast that a king throws for his son. Do you understand that there is no bigger party than the feast that a king throws for his son on his wedding day? I mean, even today we spend um, as much as we possibly can afford and more on that feast. And think about the king of the land... And think about the party and the feast and the food that a king can throw. He withholds nothing. He has no limits. And that is how Jesus wants you to think about the kingdom of heaven. Not sandwich meat on toothpicks. Got it. 
but a feast that a king throws. The party of a lifetime. As we come to this passage, I fear that our first reaction is going to be, okay, he tells us to rest. All right, well then, oh man, I've got to start keeping the Sabbath. What can I do now? Well, I need to go home and turn off the TV and put my phone up and sit there and be miserable. No. I mean, this is not what he's talking about. He is not giving us another law. He is freeing us from the law. Listen, he just emphasizes it over and over and over. Verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Verse 3, We who have believed enter that what? Rest. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. What? Rest. Verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest. God invites us to the essence of hope. Do you, do you see what's going on here? The writer of Hebrews, as God throughout the scriptures, has to command rest. Is that crazy? It's no more crazy than a king who sends out an invitation to everyone in the land to come to a wedding feast for his son and for the people of the land to say, I'm I'm, kind of busy today. Dude, you you change your schedule. (laughs) You, You change everything. I don't care if it's Mother's Day. You say, yeah, 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 okay, Mom can wait. We're going to the wedding feast of the king's son. Do you get it? And so when, when Jesus offers rest, He is offering the, the, the fulfillment of the deepest desires that we have. There is a, a lie that floats around in most of our heads, and, and, and it, it, it's rooted in our flesh that thinks this. It thinks, okay, only the world really knows how to satisfy my desires. Let's back up a little bit. Do you know who created your desires and you know who created you with desires? The God of heaven and earth. He is not, He does not look at you when you're desiring things and go, oh man, how did that happen? Ah, Holy Spirit, you're the touchy-feely one. You're the one, you know, this has got it. No, how crazy. He created us with desires, and He created us with desires that are going to be fulfilled in and by Him, not the world. Do you see it? When we taste food, when we go to the the, the feast of a king, when we experience the greatest pleasure we can possibly experience, do you realize that's just a drop in the bucket of what we've really been created for? Why don't we get this in the church? We have a God who is inviting us to rest. Hebrews is written to men and women, boys and girls that understood the Old Testament. And so they got this in a deeper way. We have to do a little work. These central reality or central historical reality and experience of the Israelites was what? The slavery and exodus. For 400 years, uh, the Israelites, God's people... Uh, lived in slavery. Now, do you know what that means? That means that there is a master, a king, a pharaoh who is sitting over them, who is using them as commodities to work and work and work in order that 
the Pharaoh can rest. The, the, the commodities, the people, the slaves don't rest so that the master or the king can rest. And so leadership and, and um, throughout the world and gods, if you will, because pharaohs were viewed as gods, uh, the gods used people for their own profit and their own rest. And so when we get to the Ten Commandments, it's so interesting what happens in Exodus chapter 20. There's a preamble to God just doesn't go in. I mean, excuse, yeah, God just doesn't go in and say, you shall have no other gods before me. What does he do? He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the, ha- or out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, okay, remember, I know, you, you, you know you're shell-shocked. You, you've had bad experiences with people in leadership over you. I get it. Uh, you've all been abused in a really bad way, but let's get this. I am not them. I am the God that delivered you from slavery. I am the God that freed you, and therefore have no other gods before me. And therefore make no graven images of me, because nobody rivals my goodness and grace and mercy. Therefore don't uh, take my name in vain, don't cuss me, I know what I'm doing, I really am a good God. And then the fourth commandment is what? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. God commands us to rest. He is the only God in the history of the universe that commands us to rest. And it's the longest commandment. Listen to it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, The sojourner who is within your... I mean, just like, who? do you get it? Okay, everybody. I'm not leaving out anybody. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and He made it holy. This doesn't seem very radical to us. In fact, those of us that grew up in the church, all we can think about, we have immediately these negative implications. Our parents, oh, you can't do that, can't do that, can't, you know, everything we can't do. No, no, no. What's going on here is God is distinguishing himself from the, the gods of the nations by saying, I am the God over your life, and I command that you stop and you just rest. Because I'm the sovereign God over you. Isn't that beautiful? So I ask you, do you view the Christian life as rest? Do you see the blessing that you have to be able to rest and not be slaves like the rest of men? And I guarantee you the majority of us in here don't. So we need to go on. So how do we rest? Tell us more. Number one, Rest is the essence of our hope, but secondly, resting demands stopping your work. Say, oh, that's a, that's profound. Let's look at this. Resting demands stopping your work. Um, I've started or been a part of starting three different church plants. And what that means is, is that I've started over three different times. 
And it's, I've, I've experienced the same thing on each church plant. You go from this realm of responsibility and activity of having people that you're ministering to and lives that you're connected with and all the stories and, you know, there's a mission of building the church and you're all working toward the common purpose. There's that to, boom, you're all alone. And you got nothing to show for it. I remember one of the first mornings, if not the first morning, we had our first place to live in Memphis when we moved back eight years ago. It was a condo on the corner of Vance and um, Maine right here. And the first morning I, I made coffee and I took my coffee cup and just kind of walked around Maine. And there, eight years ago, folks, this place was a ghost town. And I remembered my insecurities were rising up as I just kind of walked around and I was having this feeling of, what in the world have you done? You have moved your family, you've left an est- the second established church, and you have moved here. And a lot of people were kind of going, yeah, I would say, yeah, we're going to plant a multi-ethnic, multi-class church in downtown Memphis. And people go, oh, really? <laughs> I mean, you could almost hear the chuckle. Yeah, that's going to fail. I mean, I knew exactly what they were thinking. And all those insecurities came in, and what I was realizing is how much security and identity I had received out of my work of being a pastor that had planted churches as opposed to just some dude who moved in town and he's thinking about planting a church. He has this harebrained idea and it's probably going to fail. And yet in those moments, and it's happened three times in all three plants, in those lonely moments, I have never been closer. Let me figure out a better way to say this. I have never seen the reality of my relationship with God any clearer and felt the reality of the benefit of being His than in those moments. Because it's only really when you have nothing that you realize that Jesus is everything. It's only in those moments. I mean, we hear it in sermons like this, but we're having two services and I can go home and I can... Man, I kind of long for those days. Don't fire me, but I kind of long for those days where it's just me and an idea. And if God doesn't bless it, I look like a fool, but i got to be okay with that. But you see, that is what Jesus is inviting us all to. Dear friends, if you're looking for your work, or your beauty, or mothers, your children, or teachers, your students, to give you an identity, do you realize that the foundation that you're standing on is so paper thin, and all it takes is one drop of water for your whole life to be thrown into utter chaos, and your identity to be absolutely shaken? But if you have the solid rock of the reality that God knew you before the foundation of the earth, He set His sight on you to adopt, not as His commodity, but as His son or daughter. And He sent His only Son to live under the law for you, to do the work that you could never do, and then go to the cross and be condemned for your sins, for all the work you have done, and left undone, 
And all you have to do is receive that by faith, and it is covenant reality sealed by the Spirit and the blood of Christ, and nothing can ever, ever, ever separate you. You can lose your spouse, or you can never have a spouse. You can lose your children, or your parents, or your job, or your house, or whatever. But nothing can change this. And I am worthy, because He is mine, and I and His. And do you understand how there's rest in that? You see, we need to understand the purpose of our work. It's not to justify our existence. The text tells us that God finished His work and then rested. Why did He rest? Because He was done. And what does that tell us? It tells us that when God finished creation, nothing else can be added to it. So all we do in our work is we use the natural resources that already exist and we manipulate them into different forms. Wow. Let's think about the greatest preacher of all time, whoever that is to you. Maybe Tim Keller. I don't know. Let's think about that. You know all he's doing? He's taking the infallible and errant closed canon, never being added to, never being taken away, word of God, and giving new insights that have always existed. (laughs) That's all it is. That's all I do. And that's all you do at work. You go and you say, oh, but I'm a skilled manager. I'm a business owner. I've got this incredible, I've got this new app that's going to change the world. Well, guess what? That idea for that app existed in the mind of God from all eternity. You haven't created anything new, so give Him the glory. And now you begin to see. God created and then sat down and rested. And that takes pressure off of you because He's not putting it on you to create it. Those of you who feel the burden to create it, there are many nights I, 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 I'm overcome with fear. We're going to blow it. We make decisions. We're going to mess it up. It this isn't new and this isn't mine. This is God's. And then He finishes His work of creation, but then He starts a new work and it's called the work of redemption. Jesus comes. He lives under the law. We could never live under the law. He doesn't tell us, hey, go to work today. Obey the Ten Commandments perfectly or you're done. He says, no, I sent my son. My son did the work. My son bore up under the law. He obeyed it perfectly so that now I can go to him and receive a righteous standing before God. And God the Father treats me from this point forward as if I've obeyed his law perfectly. He loves me no more and no less than his own son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because it depends on Jesus' work, not mine. That's the gospel. And then I can, all my guilt and all my shame, I can take to the cross. Why? Because Jesus became my sin. Nothing I've ever done, nothing I'm doing now, and nothing I'll ever do will ever. He'll never look down and go, oh, man, I forgot one of Richard's sins. I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? And that's how we live, though. I mean, I can believe forgiveness for you, but God could never forgive me. And we think that there's some type of righteousness in that. That is utter pride and arrogance. The God of glory has been condemned for you. So you need to dance and not grovel. (laughs) You need to worship and celebrate and not live in shame. Oh, how radical is this love of God. 
that we can rest in. All we have to do is believe. The disobedience that the writer of Hebrews speaks of is is unbelief. Good news came to us just as them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It didn't say because they didn't go out and work hard enough. They weren't good enough. They weren't. No. Their disobedience was their unbelief. Because they were united by faith with those who listened. For we uh, who have believed enter that rest. What do you have to believe? That Jesus' work is done. So do you believe it? Do you believe it this morning? Have you received the gift of rest? Resting from your own work. Somebody this morning, after my sermon at the 9 o'clock, came up to me and said, Yeah, but I've still got to go home, and I've got laundry piled up, and I've got to clean the house, and I've got... And I said, Right. But your identity doesn't depend upon it. Even if you don't get it all done today, guess what? God still loves you. (laughs) Guess what? God's not frowning on you. Guess what? The world goes on. You see... Those that serve the gods of the world have to worry about the laundry as an identity issue. Have to worry about success as an identity issue. Have to worry about keeping wealth as an identity issue. Have to worry about, you know, having a perfect classroom. And I know there are a lot of teachers in here and, and there were in the nine o'clock. And a lot of pressure is put on you to have the perfect students. Guess what? You can rest. You can rest. Because Jesus loves you, and you're reconciled to the Father. And then thirdly and finally, rest is, a, is essential but so elusive. Why in the world are verses 12 through 13 in this passage? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, sharp as to you know, uh, uh, separate joints and marrow, and, and God knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. I mean, that's one of the most... Um, memorable, um, known Bible verses in all the Bible. And yet, have you ever heard it in this context of rest? I hadn't before this sermon. And even sermons I listened to didn't put it in this context. But it's clear to me, why do we need the living Word of God to judge our thoughts and intentions, to literally, for the Spirit of Christ, to literally as a surgeon, come in and expose our motives and... i tell you why. Because we don't rest easily. We, we don't naturally rest in Christ. I heard of another pastor. Uh, this guy uh, is in St. Louis, and I honestly can't remember his name. I wouldn't use it if I had to, but it's widely known. Um, A church he planted, it's an Acts 29 church, and he uh, had an active blog, he wrote books, he did video series, Um, his church was very, you you know, he was on the board of the Gospel Coalition, which is kind of ironic, and his church fired him. What in the world happened? They fired him because they could tell that instead of doing the work of God, he thought that doing the work meant he was God. I mean, guys are getting going under church discipline now, which I think is... Anyway, guys are going under church discipline now for having God complexes. And I think that's, that's, it's wonderful that finally we're taking the gospel serious enough 
because the the utter essence of what should constitute sin is us trying to knock God off his throne. And there are many of us as preachers that, that have the the ego to do that sometimes. And yet, all God is asking us to do as preachers or as members of the church in whatever position you hold, whether you're the President of the United States or whatever your job is, all God is asking of you is that you exhibit faith that His work is finished and it's enough and there's nothing you can add to it. Dear friends, that's the gospel. Are you resting in Christ this morning? What are you looking to? If, if, if I sent you off, if we were at a retreat right now, and I said, okay, we're, okay guys, we're going to take the next hour, and let's forget the laws of God. Let's just say for the next hour, I want you to go off in the woods and find a rock that you can sit on and take your pen and paper, and I want you to write all the things that you feel like you need to be doing. Uh, don't Forget about anything God might be put. Just think about all the things and write down all the things that you feel like you have to do or get done in order to really be at peace with God and the universe. Now, I want you to crumple it up and throw it on the ground and say, Jesus did it all. All to Him I owe. I want you to look at that and say, that's exhausting and Jesus did not save me to be exhausted. He saved me to rest in Him. And therefore, when your work or your beauty or your talent or your reputation or your personality or the home you live in or the car that you drive, whatever it is that you think, man, i got to do this and i you can say, Jesus is enough, and I don't need any of this, these other things. Yeah, okay, I've got a budget, I'm going to save up for a new car. Fine. Okay, I've got a budget, I'm going to buy this. That's fine. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, it's no longer your identity. And so you can lose that job, and it'll hurt. But it won't destroy you, because that job's not you. You can even lose the spouse. You can even lose the child. And it will hurt and you will grieve, but it won't destroy you because your life is Christ. Do you know Christ at that level? That's how He wants us to know Him today. And that's what Sabbath is. Sabbath rest. So dear friends, may we rest in Christ. May we draw near to Him. That's my biggest prayer this morning. Is that if you don't know Jesus, that you would fall into Him right now. And say, thank you, Jesus, that you're enough. You're enough. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the hope of the glory of the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your life, death, and resurrection. Thank you that you sat down at the right hand of the Father. That your work is done. So, God, I pray that you would help us to sit down. I pray that you would help us just to receive your love and see that you've done all that we need to do to have it. And there's nothing we can do to add to it or take it away. So God, give rest to your people here this morning. And may we go forth in the power of knowing that you are our private island. (laughs) 
You are our perfect job. You are our beauty. You're our youth. You're our new car. You're whatever we've lacked. And Father, help us to know it at the deepest level we can possibly know it. And I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.